This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Uhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... Because research has shown that breast milk, just like any other body fluids, carries Ebola virus in it. And if the baby breastfeeds on that milk, they will definitely contract the virus. That's Odira Nansamba, the public relations officer at the Ministry of Health in Uganda, advising mothers infected with Ebola. Details coming up also. U.S. President Joe Biden has arrived at the COP27 climate change conference in Egypt. A senior official says Ethiopian government forces now control the majority of the Tigray region. And a rescue ship carrying 230 migrants has docked at the French port of Toulon. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with the top story. Today at the climate summit at Sharm el-Sheikh, U.S. President Joe Biden said the United States will meet its target to cut carbon emissions by 2030. He also said his commitment to fighting climate change has been unwavering and that good climate policy is good economic policy. Biden also pledged new funds to help African nations adapt to climate change to reduce the risk from natural disasters. For a look at the other developments at the summit, Editor Kate Bondawson spoke with VOA correspondent Heather Murdoch, who is covering COP27 from Istanbul. The Global Carbon Project issued a report and presented it at the UN Climate Conference that was very alarming. It said that there is a 50% chance that the Earth's temperature will will rise by 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by the year 2030. Now, this number, this 1.5 degrees Celsius, is the benchmark for the highest uh, we want the temperature to go that was set in previous climate conferences in Paris in 2015, most notably. Um, We are not, as a globe, on track to meet this goal to limiting the the climate change to 1.5 degrees Celsius. However, previously, people hadn't thought it was going to be reached so fast, 2030, that would mean the amount of climate disasters we're experiencing would go up exponentially. There's, it's already at 1.1 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, and we are already experiencing unprecedented floods, fires, storms, potentially famines, and droughts in every continent on Earth. So 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2030 just highlights the urgency of everything else they're doing at the conference. Over the years, the Amazon has been a focus of climate activism. Uh, the, the, the Amazon, that forest is so vast that it is considered important for reducing the rise in, in global temperatures and helping suck up carbon emissions. I understand that there is a development there regarding COP27. Yes, that's true. The Amazon is the largest rainforest in the world and incredibly important to the to the environment of the globe and in recent years brazil which most of the amazon is part of brazil has been led by a climate uh, skeptic and recently brazil had elections the new president-elect luiz ignacio lula da silva most people call him lula 
is expected to arrive at COP27 on Monday and reintroduce Brazilian diplomat, uh, diplomacy to the climate change world. Um, they have been notably absent in recent years. So in recent years, it's also the in deforestation in the Amazon has increased by about 75%, which is a, you know, a, a huge detriment to the entire world in terms of the quality of the air we're breathing in the long-term future. So Lula has promised to stop deforestation and put climate change activism and action on the top of his agenda. And uh, we'll see how far he's willing to go with his own country and globally uh, when he arrives at COP27 and speaks uh, publicly about it. And that was VOA correspondent Heather Murdoch in Istanbul, where she had been following the developments at COP27 in Egypt. She spoke with VOA's Kate Pound Dawson. For more on the summit and Biden's comments today, please check out voaafrica.com and voanews.com. And tune in into African News Tonight at 1800 UTC. Redwan Hussein, the national security advisor to Ethiopia's prime minister, said today that federal government forces now control the majority of the country's northern Tigray region following the signing of a peace deal last month. He also said 35 trucks of food and medicine have reached the city of Shere in northwestern Tigray, which hosts large number of people displaced by the war in Tigray, adding that services are being reconnected. Representatives of the International Committee for the Red Cross and the World Food Program were not able to immediately confirm Redouan's comments. The French news agency AFP reports the Tigray rebels denied Redouan's claim that the federal military now controls most of their region. It may be a while before we learn which party controls the balance of power in the U.S. Congress. Three states, Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia, will determine whether Republicans or Democrats control the Senate. But a number of House races are still undecided as vote counting continues. One thing is clear at this point. The midterms did not turn out as many Republicans had predicted. For more, VOA's Carol Van Dam spoke with political reporter Meredith McGraw. There was a pretty widespread belief that there would be this massive red wave of Republicans um, that would have sweeping wins. And we just didn't see that. And a lot of people are currently pointing their fingers at Trump, saying that there were races where candidates were taken out because of his own personal vendetta against them and they could have easily won their seats or that he endorsed candidates that were not as electable and have not performed as well as people had hoped and in some cases outright lost. And we've been in this situation before where um, people have pointed fingers at Trump and have said it's time to move on. Um, I'm thinking of after January 6th or, you know, there were plenty of moments during his White House years or even the Access Hollywood tapes. And yet people still stuck with him. And you talk about that in, in your article in Politico and you mentioned the Access Hollywood tape and you say the conventional wisdom in Washington often confuses Trump's self-inflicted wounds with his undoing. What did you mean by that? 
We've had some of these major moments before the Access Hollywood tape. Trump's press conference in Helsinki was a great example when people were really shocked by what he was saying on stage next to Putin. And there were questions, um, you know, of uh, if if Republicans were going to continue to stand by him. And yet they continued to do so. So Trump does shoot himself in the foot a lot politically. In some ways, this midterms was just another example of that, where he went with people who pledged loyalty to him over people who may have been more suitable for a a certain constituency or over people who had specific policy ideas that was more based on his own personal relationship with them. And uh, people before have suggested when he's been in these situations that it, it will lead to his demise. And, you know, he's continued to carry on. But, you know, I, I was literally just talking to a pretty prominent uh, Republican before I, I got on this call with you. And, and they were saying it does seem like there are a lot more holes in the in the in the dike than there were um you know, before. And, you know, maybe we're getting to a point where the, those floodwaters will break. So more broadly, what do you see playing out now these next few days? How long do you think it's going to take for us to, to know what the outcome will be and who will have the balance of power in the U.S. Congress? It's a great question. You know, we're still waiting uh, for results in Arizona. We're still waiting for results in Nevada. And then, of course, it's not going to be until December until we know what's going to happen in the state of Georgia. That was uh, political reporter Meredith McGraw speaking with VOA's Carol Van Dam. The World Health Organization reports the Ebola virus has now spread to eight districts in Uganda, including the densely populated capital Kampala. The outbreak of this deadly hemorrhagic disease was detected in late September. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. The latest WHO figures put the number of confirmed and suspected cases of Ebola in Uganda at 157, including 52 confirmed deaths and 21 probable deaths. This brings the case fatality rate up to nearly 40%. The East African country is seeing an increase in the so-called Sudan strain of Ebola, which has no approved vaccines to prevent the virus from spreading. However, WHO reports three vaccine candidates have been identified that could be tested in randomized clinical trials in Uganda. No starting date has been set. Janet Diaz is head of the WHO's program for clinical management and health emergencies. She recently returned from a week-long visit to Uganda to take stock of the current situation and assess the needs of health facilities in affected areas. Even without a proven Ebola vaccine, she says lives can be saved by providing optimal supportive care. This includes early diagnosing and monitoring of patients. So health workers can give patients immediate care for um, dehydration with IV fluids. They can correct uh, glucose levels or electrolyte levels if they are low. They can ensure that patients get good nutrition. 
And then if they develop any co-infections, such as malaria, that that's treated appropriately. On November 1st, WHO revised its Ebola risk assessment for Uganda from high to very high and from low to high at the regional level. However, it determined the risk remained low at the global level. Health officials say successful outbreak control relies on applying a package of interventions. DIA cites community engagement as probably the most important. To stop the Ebola outbreak, she notes the community must believe, engage, and be part of that response. She says concerted efforts are being made to get the community to seek care if they have symptoms and to follow through on contact tracing. And that if any symptom occurs, you know, that they report it right away. Uh, so they can get tested and treated. And I think if we can message around the treatment and safe care and good care in Ebola care facilities, uh, then that we hope and that these facilities, you know, are inviting to, to, to patients and communities that uh, that the, that the we would avoid any stigma or fear in, um, if someone gets diagnosed. Dia says the WHO is helping Uganda's Ministry of Health to establish more bed capacity and is involved in building at least three new patient facilities. She says more More than 80 WHO experts on the ground are mentoring clinical staff on best care. In addition, she says, large-scale training is taking place on infection prevention and control. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In Uganda, mothers have been advised to stop breastfeeding their babies once they test positive for Ebola and even after they have been cured of the disease. Experts say continued breastfeeding exposes the child to a high risk of contracting the virus. The suggestion comes as Uganda is battling to control the spread of the disease, which has claimed the lives of over 50 people so far. Catherine Nambi reports from Kampala. In a circular sent to all hospitals and Ebola treatment centers across the country, the Ministry of Health has advised infected mothers to stop breastfeeding their babies given the high risk of transmission of the hemorrhagic fever. Odira Nansamba is the public relations officer at the Ministry of Health. She says the move to discourage Ebola-positive mothers from breastfeeding is meant to minimize the risk of mother-to-child transmission because research has shown that breast milk just like any other body fluids carries ebola virus in it and if the baby breastfeeds on that milk they will definitely contract the virus we therefore encourage mothers when they test positive to use alternative means of feeding their children and discontinue breastfeeding the babies According to the World Health Organization, research has shown the long-term presence of the Ebola virus in breast milk even after the mother has been cured of the disease. Dr. George Opong is an officer with the WHO office in Uganda's Kulu district. He says there is not enough evidence on when it is safe to resume breastfeeding after a mother is cured of Ebola. They recommend instead that the mother not breastfeed the child at all. Because in body fluids, like in sperm, they're saying maybe for one year. So we always encourage total weaning. The WHO also recommends the infected mothers be separated from their babies at birth and be monitored for signs and symptoms of the virus for 21 days from the day of contact with the mother. 
The Ebola fatality rate among children is high at 55% compared to the overall case fatality rate of 40%. Out of the 53 confirmed Ebola deaths in Uganda, 18 are children. Uganda is battling an increase in Ebola cases and deaths. The outbreak was first declared on the 20th of September, but statistics indicate that to date, 136 cases have been confirmed. 63 have recovered, while over 2,000 contacts are being followed. This is Catherine Nambi for VON News in Kampala. You're listening to African News Tonight. On the Voice of America, I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Please note we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. Somalia's military says it has repulsed an attack by Al-Shabaab militants on the outskirts of a town in central Somalia. Authorities said at least three soldiers were wounded in the attack. Mohamed Daisain reports from Mogadishu, Somalia. The Somali military says the army drove back an Al-Shabaab attack that targeted an army base on the outskirts of Veladwene in the central province of Hiran. Somali Defense Ministry spokesman. Abdullahi Ali Arnaud spoke to state-run radio. He says this morning, the enemy militia have launched an attack into the village of Buldar, and the army knew they were coming, and 12 of the attackers were killed, and they were defeated. He says now the forces are just in their remnants. Arnaud said three soldiers were wounded during the attack, that took place in the early hours of Friday. Locals who spoke to VOA over the phone reported heavy fighting and explosions. Al-Shabaab claimed responsibility for the attack and said they have targeted Turkish trained forces and killed 31 soldiers. The group also claimed to have seized military equipment, including nine military vehicles during the attack. VOA was unable to independently verify the claims from either side. Iran is a region in central Somalia that has seen a spark in Al-Shabaab violence after local uprising against the group has gained momentum in the region. The attack comes a day after Somalia's military said it has liberated more territory from the Islamist militants, including the strategic town of Wabho, that had been under the group's control for 15 years. It also comes as U.S. Africa Command said Friday it had conducted a collective self-defense strike against Al-Shabaab militants some 285 kilometers northeast of Mogadishu, killing 17 militants. Africa said Wednesday's strike was made at the request of the Somali government and that no civilians were hurt. The militants have increased their attacks since Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud took office in May and vowed an all-out war against Al-Shabaab. Mohamed Daisane for VON News, Mogadishu, Somalia. 
Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. On October 31, 2000, the United Nations adopted Resolution 1325, which called on member states to acknowledge and address the disproportionate and unique impact of armed conflict on women and girls. The resolution made clear the need to adopt a gender perspective with respect to the disproportionate effects of conflict and its aftermath on women and girls, and the need to meaningfully include women and girls in designing and proposing gender-sensitive solutions. Today, 22 years after the adoption of Resolution 1325, women continue to be excluded from peace and security decision-making processes, which in turn leaves them more vulnerable to disproportionate rates of violence, targeted repression, and exclusion from reconstruction, reintegration, and rebuilding decisions post-conflict. We see these same patterns around the world, and especially in areas affected by conflict, said U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Right now, we face a pivotal moment for the Women, Peace, and Security agenda. Around the world, women and girls are under threat from conflict and repressive regimes, under threat from climate, and under threat from poverty. Risks have gone up, including the threat of kidnapping, torture, killing, and gender-based violence. Women leaders, human rights defenders, activists, are particularly targeted by online threats and harassment and abuse. They're often the subject of disinformation campaigns designed to intimidate, discredit, and silence their calls for peace. The Women, Peace, and Security agenda, as outlined by Resolution 1325, offers a transformational vision, a world where women and girls are protected, included, and play an essential role for forging peace, said Ambassador Thomas Greenfield. Our charge is to make this vision a reality, not just words, but in deeds and actions. We must promote women's leadership, whether it's in their villages, it's in their capitals, or it's on the international stage as we five women members of this Security Council here promote and the many other women we see around this room today. We need to make this critical moment to band together as a global community, to raise our voices, to demand the change that we know that the women of this world need, said Ambassador Thomas Greenfield. We have to do it for the girls and for the women and for the peace and security that they will bring the world, but also the peace and security that they need to have from the world. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The former Speaker of Tunisia's dissolved parliament has been released after appearing at a 14-hour hearing yesterday on charges of money laundering and inciting violence. The French news agency AFP says 81-year-old Rashid Ghanouchi, who is also the founder of the Islamist Inhada party, was previously questioned in the case in July. It says he and other party members are accused of suspicious transactions involving a digital production firm, Instalingo, which the government accuses of plotting against state security and encouraging violence. Ghanouchi and others are also accused of sending Islamist extremists to conflict zones, charges they deny. Ganucci has been a vocal critic of President Kais Saeed's dismissal of parliament and seizure of almost unlimited power last year. 
And that wraps up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Vasco Volaric, thanks for choosing The Voice of America. Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station.